0: Well, before I get into this morning's sermon, I do have two important matters to share with you. First, it is my joy to inform you that after, I think, over two years... Since first identifying the need for a Pastor of Discipleship and Implementation, and after starting that process, stopping it for various reasons, and then resuming the search process, we now have a candidate that both the Search Committee and the Elder Council unanimously commend to the members of this church. And that candidate is one of our own elders, our current elder, Rich Parfrey. Rich, would you mind standing up and, and waving? If if you are a member, you'll be asked to vote on Rich for this pastoral position at the upcoming annual meeting next Sunday, October 18th at 4 p.m. Uh, if for some reason you won't be able to attend the meeting, as we mentioned in the announcements, you can pick up a, an absentee ballot. You can watch the live stream of the meeting and and join in, at least on listening that way and still voting. You just need to pick up one of those absentee ballots from the church office, or if you need it mailed to you, if you're watching the live stream, you're not attending uh, in, in person at uh, at. at the church on Sundays, and you can contact Karen, and we can even have it sent to you by mail. You just have to get it in by next Sunday at uh, 12 o'clock, and I think we'll, we'll wiggle a little bit. You know, if you're talking, if you're one of those people that's going to be talking after second service, and you get it to Karen before she leaves, uh, I think we can, we can make that happen. Now, I'm going to be sharing more about Rich and this position uh, this week in a video. So we're going to put together a video and just give a timeline of this whole process. And then for those of you who don't know Rich that well, I think many people do know Rich. He's an outgoing guy, uh, and he's been a great blessing to our church for many years. He and his family have have been a part of this church for for a long time. And he'll be making a major transition, if he's affirmed by by vote, from uh, the business world into uh, full-time pastoral ministry. A reminder that as a church, we believe that an elder is a pastor pastor. And though culturally we use those terms to identify a lay pastor as an elder, and oftentimes we call a staff elder a pastor, they are, uh, in, our, in our polity, and our structure as a church, uh, they have the same authority. And so even though I'm the preaching pastor and, and you hear from me more often, uh, any elder on our council has the same authority in the church that I do. Uh, I, just to, I just get to talk and, and preach a little bit more. Uh, though it took us longer than expected to get to this point, I have seen God's providence at work in this process, and I've seen so much good throughout this time, and, and I'm excited. Uh, we used to have three full time pastors. We have one and a half, not because we have half a person, but because it's really like one and a quarter, though he works half uh, time hours. Uh, Drew is also on staff as a, as a part time pastor of music, and so I'm really personally looking forward to uh, adding another full time staff pastor to our church. Um, I'm not strong in the areas that Rich is strong. And in this position, uh, I will personally, I was telling my boys, guys, I have some exciting news. Uh, and they were thinking, like, it was like something about our house or something. And I'm like, we're going to be getting a, another full time pastor. Like, great. How does that affect our lives? I'm like, I think Dad's going to be a better dad uh, after all this happens. So I, I'm excited. And I do believe that, that Rich's gifts and strengths uh, very much align with this position. And that in this position, Rich will help us as a church better. Accomplish our mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. So you'll hear more about Rich and this position in a video that we'll put together this week. Uh, secondly, uh, the, the next Sunday sermon will be the first sermon in a series titled Black and White, subtitled The Gospel, Racism, Justice, and the Church. In this four-sermon series, we will consider current events and movements related to racism and justice. With the growing confusion and the chaos surrounding these matters, we believe it's vital as a church that we consider what the Bible says about these things and we look more closely at them. Uh, Because though there seems to be a lot of gray and confusion when it comes to the gospel and the mission of the church, the Bible is black and white. And so our intention with this series uh, is to consider these things together, discuss, talk through, and listen to what God has to say to us through his word about these things. And now, having shared with you what's coming, we will turn our focus back to today's sermon, which will be the fifth and the final exhortation in this series, Stand Firm Together. Uh, if you remember, this started as one sermon, and then I thought it would be two or three, and then it blew up into five, and uh, it could have been ten, I think, and, and we might have not exhausted all the content. But we do believe, as elders, we've been talking, that this is, it's, it's good. Um, it was just, just an the right length of time, and it's time to move on to our next series. And then we'll get finally back into the Gospel of Luke after that. Now, each of these sermons in this series has been an exhortation taken from 1 Peter that will help us stand firm together as we face various struggles and trials and difficulties because of and in connection with the COVID-19 virus and what's going on in our country. So if you would, please open your Bible and turn to this morning's passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. And as you do that, I will briefly remind you of the previous four exhortations in this series. Exhortation number one Church, Christ suffered, we will too. Exhortation number two, Church, be holy, don't give in to sin. Exhortation number three, Church, fear God, honor the Emperor, the order matters. And uh, somebody pointed out, a brother pointed out to me that when when they read that the order matters, they were thinking that I was referring to the order, the mandate. What I was referring to there is the order of that statement. Fear God, that matters first, then honor the emperor. So maybe I just cleared up some confusion for some of you as well. So fear God first, then honor the emperor. Exhortation number four, preached by Matt Jantz last Sunday, church. We must keep proclaiming God's excellencies. And the fifth and the final exhortation is this, church, we are elect exiles, citizens of another kingdom. And so if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, This is God's word to God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Please be seated. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Oh God, you are God. How good it is to be with your people in a building that we call a church, but we recognize that the church is a people, a people that cannot be closed down or shut down or restricted. Of people that will continue to worship you now and forever. And so that is what we long to do this morning together. Worship you. Hear from the God who speaks to his people by his spirit through his word. Lord, you know my heart. You know my weaknesses and my inabilities. Please overcome them this morning as your word goes forth. Help me to shepherd this church by your word. I recognize that Jesus is the good and great and perfect shepherd. And I am just an under-shepherd. One of many that have been called to serve Christ's precious church, his bride, his flock. So Lord, please empower me. Strengthen me. Do not let me be ashamed of the gospel this morning. And I do pray for us as a local church. Of course we pray for the global church. We pray for those brothers and sisters spread across this globe in places where they are being persecuted, and this is not new. Restrictions are not new for them. They've been restricted since the, the day of their new birth, and yet they continue to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and treasure your son Jesus Christ above all, and it hurts. It's cost them dearly. And as we consider the churches, the, the brothers and sisters in various states that are under more restrictions and limitations, We pray for them to be wise, to be discerning, to be humble, and to be faithful. Help us to learn from them. Lord, we pray for the sick among us. We know that there's not just a virus called COVID-19, but there are many other sicknesses and colds and flus and there's cancer and other diseases and, and physical disabilities and spiritual warfare. And so we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your people that we would fight the good fight by faith, not shrinking back from the the various things that you've called us to do and the various spheres that you've put us in at work, in the home, in this community. Help us, we pray. We do pray that you would bring comfort and strength and peace to those who are grieving. We pray that more and more people would hear the gospel and believe it, and that those who believe it would live their lives in light of the gospel. And now, Lord, please work Help us to receive the truth that we need to receive, to apply it, to love it, to enjoy it. Not just to submit, but to grab hold and be changed by Christ. To become more and more the people that you've called us to be. Elect exiles, you've made us. We are citizens of another kingdom. Help us to understand this and to live in light of it as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The words elect exiles, citizens of another kingdom, are not found in this passage, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. However, I chose to read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, and we will spend a lot of time this morning in it because I believe that it provides us with a good picture of what it looks like to be elect exiles and citizens of another kingdom. It seems wise then to first address the exhortation itself before we look more at the passage. We, be, we begin then with the phrase elect exiles. It's taken from the very first verse of 1 Peter, where Peter, after introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he calls the Christians that he's writing to, the church that's being persecuted in Asia Minor, present day Turkey, elect exiles. That's how he starts the letter. That's, that's the title he gives them. You are elect exiles. And it doesn't just describe the persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. It describes the church today. We are elect exiles. To be elect means to be chosen. Now you may not be aware of this, but in about three weeks, the American people will either re-elect the president, the current president, or will elect a new president of the United States of America. Maybe that's breaking news to you. Now, whatever the outcome of the election, the president-elect, that is elected, will have been chosen by the collective will of the American people according to our Constitution. At least we hope that's how it works. And those of us who vote will be seeking to elect a candidate we believe to be the best candidate, or at least the better candidate. We will make our choice based on uh, any number of things. The, the candidate's qualifications, their policies, and their positions. We will hopefully choose the one that we believe will do what aligns the closest with our own convictions and beliefs and worldview. Especially as Christians, we are to pick a candidate that we think will align the closest with, with our worldview, a biblical worldview. Though some of us will vote for one candidate because we can't stand the other. Whichever candidate we choose, will be, we will be choosing that candidate because of something they have said or done, or because of something we believe they will or they won't do. In this way, our choosing or electing is conditional. It is dependent on who that candidate is or is not, something that candidate has done or what we foresee that candidate doing or not doing. But praise God, this is not how God elects or chooses us. It's not conditional. If you're a member or a long-time attender of our church, you know that our church teaches that God's election is unconditional. Sometimes this is called reform theology or Calvinistic theology. Uh, what this means, maybe you're not familiar with those terms, is that we believe that the Bible teaches that God does not elect or choose us because of who we are or who we are not, something we have done or something that he foresees us doing or not doing. We teach what we believe the Bible teaches, that God chooses or elects people simply and solely only according to his sovereign and his free will. That God ultimately is the one who has total and true free will. That despite Christians being born sinners and having chosen to sin, just like all people, despite our deserving of his holy wrath like all of mankind, God the Father planned and then sent his Son, and the Lord Jesus Christ was born a man, and he lived a righteous and holy life in our place, And then he died on the cross to atone for our sin, and he was raised by God by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us new and everlasting life now and forever. We were dead, but he chose to make us alive. And our triune God did all of this. He chose to save us, and then he accomplished our salvation completely by his sovereign grace. As I've said before, grace is by definition not fair. Fair is something you deserve, Something you've earned. Grace, God's grace is not fair. It's unmerited favor. That's a classic definition. Unmerited favor, God's grace. That's not fair. No, absolutely no Christian. It doesn't matter if you come from three generations of Christians. It doesn't matter if you've been a sweet, wonderful, kind person your entire life. No Christian deserves to be elected by God. No Christian is a better candidate, more qualified or a lesser evil than those who God does not elect. His election of us is unconditional. If God's choosing of us were conditional, that is based on something in us or something he foresees that we would someday do or not do, then he would choose none of us. No one would be elect. When teaching on the truth of unconditional election, Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election, referring to unconditional election, because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love." Though many of us may at one time or another struggle with the doctrine of unconditional election, I believe that this quote from Charles Spurgeon captures the humble and worshipful heart of one who recognizes it to be true in Scripture and believes it and embraces it, even though it can be a struggle. It does not lead to pride. It doesn't lead us to saying, hey, I'm better than you because I'm elect and you're not. We don't play that game. I'm praying that God would save everybody that I talk with and share the gospel with. But what this doctrine leads to is humility. I did not deserve to be chosen by God. But according to his sovereign, free will, he chose me. And he chose you if you're a Christian. But along with being chosen by God, elect, we are, at least for now, as Peter says in the same breath, exiles. We're chosen and we're exiles. To be an exile is to be someone who is living away from their native country. And this very much relates to the second part of the exhortation. We are citizens of another country, another kingdom, and that is God's kingdom. The Apostle Peter uses the, the same word, exiles, later in 1 Peter 2, 11. Here, reading verses 9 through 11, which we covered last Sunday, will be helpful. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. But you are a chosen race In verse 9, the phrase chosen race could also be translated as elect race. Of course, race here has nothing to do with one's color of skin and everything to do with God's grace towards sinful people. God chooses to take rebellious sinners like you and me from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who have darker skin and lighter skin, who are from all different places, cultures, and countries, whose passports read something different than other people, people in the same kingdom that he has brought us into. And what does he do? He makes us his priests, members of his nation, calls us his people. We are his possession. We belong to God. And as we were reminded last Sunday, now we Christians are to proclaim God's excellencies. We were in darkness, but God brought us into his light. We are now, by God's mercy, citizens in God's kingdom, and he is our ultimate and great king. Now, this does not mean that we reject or deny our earthly citizenship in whatever country we might be citizens of, or that because we are citizens in God's kingdom, that we do not need to obey the laws or submit to the government that we are are a part of or underneath. We considered this a few weeks ago in the third exhortation, Fear God, Honor the Emperor. But, But what does it mean? But what it does mean is that because of the miracle of the new birth, because we have been born again in Christ, we have dual citizenship, along with being an American, or a Mexican, or Canadian, or Albanian, or Brazilian, or a Senegalese citizen. We are citizens in Christ's kingdom. And that citizenship, that earthly citizenship, one day it will be insignificant. When we die, sure, we might be buried in the country of our origin, or where we have become citizens of, but... but that, that pretty much ends our citizenship in that land. But this citizenship in heaven, in the kingdom of God, will last forever. And because we are citizens of this greater and eternal kingdom, until our king, Jesus Christ, returns, we, the church, the elect of God, are living in exile. What does it look like for us to live in exile today? Well, this brings us back to 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God now if you remember and i reminded you earlier the first exhortation i gave in this series was church christ suffered we will too and that was so important to lay the groundwork we're going to suffer whether it's because of a pandemic or a virus or because it's illegal to be a christian in whatever land we're un- we're in we're going to suffer. And some of us Christians have, have gotten used to not suffering. We've been told by the world the goal is to not suffer, and yet in Scripture, we're told, no, you will suffer. So if your goal as a Christian is to not suffer, there's, there's going to be a contradiction, and that's going to affect the way you think about things like pandemics and viruses and corporate worship on Sunday mornings and, and even mask wearing or not wear, mask wearing. It's going to affect everything. But here Peter is not just telling us to prepare for suffering like he does in other passages. Peter is calling for us to arm ourselves by how we think about suffering. It's interesting language. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had about his suffering. What what does he mean? Now, without getting into all the different possibilities, and there's three or four possibilities, I think what Peter is saying here is a lot like what Paul says in Romans 6, 6 through 11. I'll read that. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And we are no longer slaves to sin. Christ's death, his suffering, put an end to our being slaves to sin. We don't have to submit to sin anymore. It's not our master. Christ is. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, because he came into this world as a man and he suffered in the flesh, dying on the cross to atone for our sins, we no longer, as Peter says, live our lives for human passions. That's not the goal. Before we were in Christ, before we were united to Christ by faith, that was the goal. And we pursued it in any many different ways. It could be by fame, by, uh, by finding our identity in the things that the world says are good, in our career, in our family, in pursuing partying or a relationship uh, that was sinful. But not so anymore for we Christians. We elect exiles. We now live for God. Think about what it means to arm yourself. It means to be ready for a battle. Today we might think of being armed with a gun, the christians that peter wrote first peter 2 may have thought of being armed with a dagger or a sword but peter says christians you elect exiles chosen by god who are sojourners strangers in this land not yet in your eternal home you are to be armed with the right way of thinking that's hard Especially today, as we're hearing so many things. We're given so many facts and statistics. We're being told we have to do this or not do this. How should we think about these things? Well, how do you combat all of that? You arm yourself with the right way of thinking. Because Christ suffered and died for you, you can and you are to live for God. If we're going to stand firm together, church, and that's been the call in this series every single sermon. If you're going to stand firm against the attacks of the world, the attacks of the flesh, your own temptations, if you're going to stand firm against the attacks of the devil, if we're going to make it through the trials, difficulties, and struggles that have and will come because of things like COVID-19, whether they be difficulties because of restrictions or possible divisions among us over the varying views among us regarding what we should or we shouldn't be doing, including the wisdom or the folly of wearing or not wearing a mask, we must be armed by thinking rightly about what Christ has accomplished in his suffering. Jesus knew that his suffering would bring us and all God's elect into his kingdom, and he was willing to suffer for us to do just that, and that's what he did. He has brought us into his kingdom through his suffering. Although we will never be totally free from sin in this life, being armed by what Jesus did for us will help us endure suffering and be obedient to our King. Again, Jesus is calling us at times to do things that the world says, you better not do that. Again, in some countries, it's illegal to do what Jesus says you must do, Christian. You must do this, follower of Christ. You must worship God alone. You must not bow to the evil dictator in North Korea. And so the Christian in North Korea says, do I obey God? Do I worship God? Or do I in various ways worship the dead dictator or, and his son? Or the next dictator to stand in his place? If you say, I will not suffer, you will bow to the dictator. You will bow to the emperor and you will not bow to King Jesus. We live as exiles, citizens of another kingdom who live not for sinful passions, but for God. That's why we live. That's why God has you, Christians, still here and he hasn't brought you to heaven yet. He's got things for you to do with the rest of your life. Not to waste it, sitting at home in fear. Again, I'm not, I'm not advocating for foolishness and recklessness I'm not saying that if, if your conscience compels you to take more precautions than others, that you shouldn't follow your conscience, and that. that's not at all what I've said or what we've tried to say in this series. But I'm pushing against the, the agenda and the message that we're hearing over and over and over live in fear of a virus. No, live in fear of God, and don't waste your life. Picking up in verse 3 for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do Peter says, no more living like Gentiles. Church, you you must not live like the Gentiles. Here in this context, Gentiles refers to non-Christians. Not to those who are not Jews. Simply those who reject the gospel. Here again, we're reminded that there are really only two ways for a person to live. Either they will live for self and in sin, or they will live for God and in Christ. That these two ways to live, they do not blend together. They they they're not friends. Yes, we love those who hate us. We seek to build relationships with non-Christians um, because of co- God's common grace. Some of them are very kind and considerate to non or to Christians, even though they reject the gospel. But these two ways of living, they 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 don't blend together. And that some of those who live for sin will malign, that is, slander, attack, and wrongly judge those who live for God. But Peter assures us that those who do not repent and trust in Christ, those who live for themselves and in sin, will give an account when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is coming back. And those who reject him and who mess with his people will have to deal with the king when he comes back. And that should be an encouragement to the Christian who is going through sufferings and persecution, who is being maligned, who is being called names. Jesus, your King and Savior, is coming back and they will have to deal with him when he returns. But Peter assures us that that those who do not repent and trust in Christ will, will not only just be judged because they reject Christ, they will be judged because of how they treat God's people elect exiles you see God will not be mocked nor will he allow those who attack his bride to go unpunished Christ is the perfect husband every other really good husband has nothing on Christ and so there will come a day when the mocking is done Jesus was mocked and ridiculed when he came the first time he was rejected he was spit upon he was made fun of he was wrongly judged. And ever since, all those who follow him follow in that same path. They are at some point going to be maligned, attacked, made fun of, called names. Foolish, ignorant, backward, stupid, bigots, and now racist, even if they're not. And yet when Jesus comes back, the husband will forever lay down the law on those who have messed with his bride. I believe this truth is in view in verse 6. That the dead that Peter is speaking of, when you first read it's like, what is he talking about? The dead? I believe the dead that Peter is speaking of, who the gospel is preached to, are Christians who had died physically. That some of those living for self and in sin were were mocking the Christians who had formerly lived like them in sin for themselves. But after repenting and trusting in Christ, these Christians, they began to live for God and then what? They got old. Or maybe some of them were martyred. And they died. And these non Christians were saying something like the Christians who died were foolish. They gave up all the good stuff of this life, all the sin. They gave it all up for Christ. And what happened to them? They died, anyways. Just like everybody else. Just like these non Christians would die. These Christians were were, were dying, and they're saying, What's the difference? They wasted their lives. It was a first century form of YOLO, you know, you only live once, which is the, the mantra, the message that keeps on getting told to, to all of us, especially our young people. Hey, you only live once. You're only young once. Go try it. Have fun. Live for yourself now and then turn to Christ. That's garbage. It's a lie. It's from the devil. And that, that's, in essence, what the, these non Christians were, were saying to the Christians YOLO, you only live once and you wasted your one life. But Peter says, that is a lie. Though these Christians were judged in the flesh, though they physically died, they are still spiritually very much alive. They are with God. So the world living for God will in the end be foolish. They might say, oh, that's nice, that's sweet. You guys start hospitals, you do some good stuff, you're kind, you're good neighbors. But in the end, in their mind, they're saying they're, they're, they're foolish. They're wasting their lives. But the reality is the opposite. It is those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ that are wise and will not waste their life. If you haven't done that, and it's not just a moment thing like, "Hey, now I feel better at pray to prayer, I got called to, to trust in Christ." And I said, "No, if you haven't given your life to Christ, turned from your sin, stopped living like a Gentile, and started living as one who loves and follows Christ, then you are wasting your life, and today is the day. Stop it. Don't be foolish any longer. Turn from your sin, repent, and trust in Christ. Don't waste the rest of your life, whether you're 12 or 16 or 38 or 78. If God just gives you one more day or 50 more years, don't waste any more of it. Living like the Gentiles. That time is done. It's in the past. Live for Christ today. And just what does Peter say we elect exile, citizens of God's kingdom, are to be doing with our lives? Well, we find a lot of direction from Peter in verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now again, the words elect exile citizens of another kingdom are not there, but you should pick up on the themes. Glory and dominion forever and ever, that, that's king language. Because he's a king. We Christians are to be prepared for Christ's return. Ever since Jesus' birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, we have been in the last days. Whatever your eschatology is, whether you're pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill, we're in the last days. There's uh, the, the, the days and then the last days. We're in those second days, the last days. This should not cause us to live in fear or to stop caring about the world and those around us. It should cause us to do the very opposite. Church, Peter goes on to instruct elect exiles waiting for Christ to be doing things that will bless others, especially one another. He doesn't say, in light of all this craziness, it's, it's every man, woman, and child for themselves. Good luck. I hope you make it through the storm. That's not what he says. That's the way of the world, not the way of Christ. He came to serve. Rather than follow the world into a flood of debauchery. Picture that language, a flood of debauchery. That's what's going on. A flood of debauchery. Instead of getting drunk to escape the difficulties of this life, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. What does that mean? We need, as Christians, to be ready and able to pray. And if we are self controlled and sober minded, our prayers won't won't just be for ourselves. We'll be praying for one another. We'll be praying for God to be glorified. This is one reason why we can't give in to the mania surrounding COVID 19. We need to be thinking clearly. We need to be ready and focused so that we pray God centered, biblical, Christ exalting prayers. That we pray for true, genuine revival. That God would would cause a great work to happen throughout this land. That the church in America would be strong and faithful again. Not just in pockets, but in in large groups. We need to be praying that we would not shrink back from persecution when it comes. Not, Lord, just end the suffering and the misery. You're not thinking clearly, Christian. You're you're not being sober-minded Yes, we, we pray for comfort and strength and peace, but the goal is, again, not to avoid suffering. What is the goal? How have we summarized it? To glorify God. To proclaim the gospel, make disciples, treasure Christ above all. And this is all that's going on, an opportunity for us to do just that. Not to pray it away, Lord, just end it, end it, end it. I woke up again, and here it is. We're still wearing masks, we're still under these restrictions. Just take it away. Stop praying that prayer. Pray, God, please, yes, protect, bless, heal those who have COVID-19, sure. But even as we pray those prayers, Lord, make me more like Christ. Make my church stronger. Hold us together. Let us not divide over these things, but be sanctified through this time. Peter also calls us to love one another. It's certainly true that our Savior calls us to love those who hate us. But here the focus is on loving the church, other citizens of God's kingdom. And our love for one another is not to be superficial, but to be earnest and constant, deep. Because God loves us, we love each other. And it is God's love for us that creates, strengthens, and sustains our love for one another. If you have tasted and experienced God's love, you can love God other Christians. It can be hard. We talk about it. Some of us are really weird. I put myself in that camp, in that category. It can be hard for some of you to love me. I'm sorry, but you got to do it, and I got to love you. Why? Because God loved me, and he's loved me with such a powerful and amazing love that he equips, strengthens, fertilizes my love for you, even as we disagree and we differ and we work through things, whether it be theological or, or preferences or convictions, whether we should have drums on the stage or not have drums, whether we should be singing this song or that song, whatever it might be, we can work through it because God has loved me and he's loved you and we can love each other through this. And that's not some cheesy singing kumbaya, dancing through the lilies mumbo-jumbo. That's the reality. That's the biblical truth. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Edmund Clowney writes, and he says he's a, he was a wise, godly uh, man when he wrote this, and so he, he kind of goes into a couple things. I, just, I couldn't edit it down. I have to read it all. If love collapses at its first test, it's not worthy of the name. Love never fails. A parent's love for a child grows as it is tested. Someone has said that a toddler steps on your feet and a teenager on your heart. Maturing children, in turn, may grow in love for their parents. As adults, they perceive the faults and sins of their fathers and mothers in a new perspective. Their love is tested and grows. We do not love others if we take delight in finding and exposing their faults and sins. Rather, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter reflects the language of Proverbs. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Love does not keep score, but grants forgiveness freely to every brother or sister who seeks it. What a great picture Clowney gives us of of love. Church, what what are we to be doing in this season? Loving one another earnestly. Are you doing that? Loving one another. That is, other Christians, especially in your own local church. Loving one another earnestly, bearing with one another, going through the tests and the struggles and trials, not abandoning one another at the first test or the second or even the third test. Working through our struggles, helping each other fight sin and grow in Christ. One practical way to do this is by showing hospitality to one another without grumbling Now, I realize that at this time, many of us may not feel comfortable having people over or going to each other's houses, whether that be for fellowship or a meal or community group. But whatever precautions we're taking to limit our exposure or to limit other people's exposure to a virus, we need to be finding ways to show hospitality. That is to be a mark of Christians. We show hospitality. Yes, to our neighbors. Uh, Some of us, you know, we're, we're hoarders. And so what do we do? We don't have people over so I don't want them to see them that. Throw the stuff away. You have an idol. It's called stuff. You might say, Oh, I, I got this on that trip. It's a junky little trinket. Put it in the garbage. Clear off the shelf. Put a couple books, a Bible, get a I've talked about this before, a crock pot. It's easy, just throw a bunch of stuff in there, turn it on, and you have a meal. And whenever you're comfortable, whenever you're able to do this, have people over. Yes, neighbors, non-Christians, share the gospel, but especially Christians. Open your home, bring them in, love them, talk, laugh, play games, open your Bible. It's beautiful, and that's one of the ways that we show hospitality to one another. It may be having a meal sent to someone instead of having them over right now, or ordering groceries for a single mother, or someone who's elderly and struggles financially, or sending a card or a gift to someone who's especially isolated in the season, or or calling just to encourage a brother or sister in Christ who you know is struggling. So many ways to love each other earnestly. In verse 10, Peter tells us that, that we are to use the gifts that God has given to us to serve one another, that we are to be good stewards of God's varied grace, God gives us gifts not just for our benefit, not so that we can say, hey, look what I got. I got this awesome gift over here and I'm going to show it off. Not at all. He gives us gifts to serve and to bless one another. Here Peter has in mind gifts of speaking and gifts of service. He doesn't get into specifics or or give us a list. We find lists and specifics in other places. He he doesn't limit it to preaching and teaching and generosity or cleaning. It's all that and more. You see, whatever gifts that God has given to us, We're to use them to love and to bless each other. That is what living in exile together as citizens in God's kingdom is to be like. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. It shouldn't be all doom and gloom. It's having people over for meals, encouraging them, praying with one another. As we wait for our King's return, we're to live for Christ now and help each other live for Christ now. Some of us will do this by preaching sermons. Or teaching children or adult adult Sunday school classes. Leading community groups, sharing the gospel, discipling one-on-one. We might do it through biblical counseling or Bible studies or by praying with and for one another. We we might use words of encouragement or or loving correction to do this. We might do it, and this I do believe is a gift, by cleaning for someone. Visiting, sharing, cooking, being generous with our time, money, and resources. Because we recognize that they come from God and we're to steward them, not hoard them. Because we are elect exiles, citizens of another kingdom. And our king, Jesus Christ, has called us to love one another. Whether there's a pandemic or not, there's no loophole. Hey, you don't have to do these things when the government says uh, you have to put a mask on. No, there's no loophole. So that in everything and in every season, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, as we close this series, I want to remind you that the aim of this series has been to help us stand firm together. That's been the goal the whole time. We need to stand firm together so that we continue to accomplish our mission. And that mission has been clear. We've simplified it. We believe that this is what God has called us to do. We need to glorify him. And we do that by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. I know some of you have struggled during this series, not so much with each of the exhortations, but with how they apply to you and, and how they are to be applied within the life of the church. I've tried to say this multiple times. I'm okay with that. I'm struggling with some of these exhortations too. In community groups, we've had some really good discussions where we didn't leave you know, saying, we all agree. And these things need to continue to happen if we are going to stand firm together. It's not avoid talking about them. As one of your elders and the pastor of preaching and vision, I want to encourage you to keep working through these exhortations. Lovingly share your thoughts and concerns with those in your church, your elders, your pastors, uh, and your community group. God is using this season to sanctify us individually and corporately. But make sure that God's word is your guide and not Fox News or CNN. Okay? This book is infallible. It is given to us from the very mouth of God through His Spirit. This needs to be our ultimate guide. We can learn things from other sources and and resources. And above all, keep loving one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. We can be stronger, we can be better. We can be more sanctified and holy if we stick together and we stand firm. Let's pray. Oh God, I do pray that you would work these truths, these five exhortations, deeper and deeper into our minds and our hearts. That we would not live in fear from anyone or anything but you, the living God, who has saved us by his grace and for his glory. The mission has not changed. We must love one another through this season we know that things could get harder or better. We know that you, you do not change, and you have called us to these glorious tasks. Help us to do them in faith, trusting that you will provide what we need, whether it be faith or strength or love or energy or time or money, to do them. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.